I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Also in your electronic devices, go ahead and click there if you'd like. And as you're arriving, I would like to thank Pastor Joel for uh, filling the pulpit last week and doing an outstanding job. And I appreciate him very much. I appreciate what he did. And I know that uh, if you weren't able to be here, you can find that particular sermon on the church app and also at rosedalebiblechurch.com. So I know I'm doing a terrible advertisement for our website, but it's worth your time to hear Joel. He did a great job. Well, speaking of our current series, I, we, we've been studying the spiritual gifts that God has, has given to each one of his children. And these grace gifts are not given so we can live our best lives now, but they've been given, as the Scriptures say, to, for the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. They've been given to serve each other, to serve one another. Well, the gifts mentioned in 1 Corinthians are these, and I go down the list. The utterance of wisdom, knowledge, the gift of faith, the gift of healing, the working of miracles, prophecy, distinguishing spirits, and tongues, and in the interpretation of them. Now, this list isn't exhaustive. This is a list that we get, that we do get from 1 Corinthians 13, but other places in the Scripture, we find that God has given other spiritual gifts as well. They can be found in Romans chapter 12, where others are such as service, teaching, exhorting, generosity, leadership, and mercy. And one other mention of the grace gifts is found in 1 Peter, where Peter is uh, maybe a little more precise with his words, where he says, whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God and whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. All for the glory of Christ. All of these given so that they can be used to serve one another exclamation point. But the problem that the Corinthian church had, and maybe sometimes we do too, that they were focusing on themselves. They were desiring the gifts to put the spotlight on themselves. They, they had a selfish bent. When my daughter was in, I believe, in grade school, they did a children's program, and I looked up, tried to look up this song, but all I could get was a Taylor Swift song. It wasn't a Taylor Swift song, I guarantee you. But the song was called Eye Trouble. They, it was all on that. They had eye trouble. I, 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 I. That's all they could think about. They wanted glory for themselves. They wanted to be seen and heard, not to be seen and not heard. They needed to have, but they needed to have the attitude of the three musketeers. What was that attitude, church? All for one and one for all. 
But Paul wrote the last verse of chapter 12, and I would ask you to look, maybe look there, just go down, just the last verse of chapter 12, and I will show you a still more excellent way. What is this more excellent way? What is it? Four-letter word, starts with L, ends with E. Love. It is what matters most. Well, two weeks ago, we considered the first seven verses, and today we'll look at the last six. And the sermon is simply called, What Matters Most? Part two. You could tell I really thought about this. It was part one and then part two. As I often ask, would you stand with me and follow along as I read the entirety of chapter 13? The Word of God says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. May God bless the reading of his word, and may it sink deep into our spirits as we are taught and led by the Holy Spirit of God into living a life that displays God's love, which was displayed by Christ Jesus our Lord. You may be seated. As we look, on the, look back on the first seven verses, they could be summarized this way, and I will, I'll read it to make sure I get it right. Love gives people time to grow. Love treats other people with kindness and courtesy. Love desires the best for people and realizes that what is best is to embrace the Lord and His direction for life and eternity. Love doesn't keep score. Love gives other people the benefit of the doubt. Love spotlights the best in others rather than spotlighting their weaknesses. Love cherishes the truth and hates all that is evil. 
Love never gives up. The first century believers, often like us, have been concerned about the show instead of what gifts were given for. What were they given for? To relate to their neighbor in love. And we'll conclude this chapter by continuing to observe what matters most. Again, what matters most? Love. And keeping with the I iterations, remember they were iterations of I last time, we'll continue with that. First, the indestructibility of love, the indestructibility of love. Where we last left off in the last half of verse 7, we see this, that love endures all things. Now, this is important because this sets up what is going to be spoken about today. So love endures all things. Heartaches, disappointments, hospitalizations. Often we have the desire to just throw up our hands, to give up. It's simply, I just, I just want to quit. I don't want to go on anymore. But God's love doesn't quit. It never quits. God's love endures even in our shortcomings, in life's shortcomings. God's love is indestructible. It will even endure longer than the spiritual gifts that have been given by the Holy Spirit. Understand that. It is going to endure longer than the gifts. Verse 8 tells us that unlike the other gifts, love is permanent. Love is permanent. Now, when we read the first sentence, we can possibly argue with the words. Now, the ESV translates it this way, love never ends. But other translations, you might have one in your hand or you're in, your, in your device, the NAS, NASB, the NIV, and the New King James Version, they translate the word, love never fails. It also can be translated, love never falls. It's a picture of collapsing. No, love always stands. Now, I could probably pull every single person in the room and within the sound of my voice. When it says that love never fails or love never falls, has divorce touched any of your lives? Have any of your close friendships collapsed? Maybe brother and sister or familial relationships gone? Families who have left churches? Love never fails? No, it doesn't. I appreciate what a prominent theologian has written, and I quote, love is not a magic key that Christians use to unlock every opportunity and guarantee every endeavor. Love is not a spiritual formula that faithfully applied automatically fulfills our desires and produces human success. Love does not always win, at least in the usual sense. They go on, Jesus Christ was love incarnate, yet he did not by his perfect love succeed in winning every person to himself. 
He was ridiculed, maligned, denied, denied, rejected, and crucified. Paul could have been called the apostle of love, so could have John, but we're speaking in Paul's letter this time. Yet he did not leave a trail of perfect successes wherever he ministered. He was persecuted, arrested, beaten, imprisoned, and like his Lord, put to death because of what he said and did in love. Because love does not overpower human will, we cannot always accomplish our purposes, no matter how loving, spiritual, and selfless we may be. But no godly work can be accomplished without love. Success will not always be a part of love, but love will always be a part of true spiritual success, close quote. Love is permanent. Look at the last half of verse 8. But as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Now, something that we can't see in the English, in our English translation happened to these gifts. Prophecies and knowledge will pass away. They'll be abolished. Now, the Greek word katarageo is written in what is called the passive voice. You're going, what in the world are you talking? Believe me, it's important. A passive voice, which means, and I quote from my Greek grammar, the Wallace Greek grammar, no less, it is, the, which means, if it's a passive, which means that the subject is acted upon or receives the action expressed by the verb, and you're going, oh, what are you talking about? Prophecy and knowledge is the subject. This is being acted upon. It's passive. It happens to them. God is the one causing them to be taken away. God is the one causing knowledge and prophecy to be abolished for tongues to cease. This is written in what is called a middle voice. Boy, you're learning so much today that I know that you will just talk about on and on and on. Again, quoting from Wallace. The subject, in this case, tongues, languages, performs or experiences the action expressed by the verb in such a way that emphasizes the subject's participation. Tongues is doing this to itself. They cease. They'll be gone. They'll be discontinued. They cease on their own. But love remains. Love remains. Love is permanent. Love continues even after death. And the next verse tells us that unlike other gifts, love is complete. The other gifts are now described as being partial. They aren't fully complete, and they never will be. Now, this doesn't mean that the gifts that God gives us, they're not important. What it means is they're only for a time. They're for in a time, for a time that which we are in now, in between Christ's ascension and the end of days. That's what the, when they're good for, from Christ's ascension to his second coming. Well, no one knows Please do not say that you do. No one knows or understands every single thing there is to know about God. We simply do not know. And we certainly do not know everything about His ways. 
why he does certain things, but we do know that he's sovereign, that he is good. Let's look, take a look at verses 9 through 10. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Well, the question then that we have to answer is, okay, what does perfect mean? Because when it comes, we will no longer have any need for these other grace gifts. Now, I'm going to give you a few arguments about a few different things that people believe. Some have argued that it's the coming of the perfect is when the Scriptures were finalized, when the canon of Scripture was completed. It's okay, it's, it has its merits, but if that's the case, this would mean that the gifts are not for today. One commentator is helpful when he writes, and quote, if the perfect refers to the completion of Scripture and prophecy and knowledge have already been stopped, then all believers since that time would have been without the benefit of two of the most important gifts for proclaiming, interpreting, and understanding Scripture. The gift of prophecy was only partly used for revelation. In most cases, it was used for proclaiming and interpreting what already had been revealed. The church would be in dire straits if the gift of knowledge and prophecy had ceased with the completion of the New Testament, close quote. Some say that the perfect refers to Christ's return. Now, John wrote in his first letter, he said, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. But the Greek word for perfect, again, you're going to go here again to the, to the grammar. Perfect is written in what is known as the neuter, neuter gen, gender. All right, we have male gender, masculine gender, feminine gender, and a neuter gender, gender in Greek. So what neuter means it doesn't relate to a person, but a thing or a time. So this means that the perfect isn't even Jesus coming back a second time. It's not Jesus, even though he is perfect. Make no mistake, he is perfect. But that's not what Paul is talking about here, which leaves us with the answer that when Paul writes the perfect, he is speaking of what is called the eternal state. When all is said and done, when everything is finished, when we're in the new heavens and the new earth, that's the perfect. After our death, or if we're still alive, when Christ comes again, when we are changed, it's what takes place at the end of days when sin is done away with. Oh, I'm waiting for that day. David Garland says it well. He says, perfect is shorthand for the consummation of all things. The intended goal of creation and its arrival will naturally displace the partial that we experience in the present age. How? When the anticipated end arrives, there will be no need for the gifts. Only love will remain. We could use Melvin Nickel and Clara Cleaver as examples of these. 
They have no need for spiritual gifts any longer. Why? Because they are in the presence of God in glory. For them, partial is past and has been replaced by the complete. Well, Paul now offers two illustrations concerning when the perfect comes. And there comes a time when certain activities are no longer appropriate. They're just, they're just not, you shouldn't do it anymore. They're no longer needed. Well, first compares a child to an adult. Now, I've had a lot of people ask me about the lemons race last week, and they said, oh, you have so many good illustrations you can use. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> Not good ones. But last weekend, at our lemons race, there was a gorgeous little girl with her mother rooting for another car that will remain nameless. Now, this little girl, this little 11-month-old girl, she doesn't walk yet, but she is very, very close to walking. But you want to make her happy, you take her out of her stroller and you put her not on a blanket, but in the dirt. She loves to play in the dirt. She loves to squeeze it. She loves to use it as hair products. She even loves to use it as skin products. And she even likes to eat it. She is a farmer's daughter, so I get it. But she uses dirt as a toy. But if 20 years from now, little Evie is still doing the same things, if she's still putting dirt in her hair, on her skin, uh, there's going to be some problems. She hasn't moved on from being a child to an adult. need to move on. There comes a time when certain things are no longer appropriate. It's not saying that the gifts are bad. They're not saying that the gifts are, are immature, but they won't be appropriate anymore. Verse 11, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish things. And again, Paul isn't saying these gifts are childish, but these gifts are for a time. And before we go on, I'd be remiss if I don't challenge us to move on from childish ways. We need to move towards maturity. Maturity in Christ. Paul made a statement when he said, I would, I've given you milk to drink instead of pure spiritual food. And I know that we do, we do very well, but we need to strive to put away childish things. We need to strain to not put, put, keep our old self on, but to, to rid ourselves of our old worldly ways and put on the new. Being able to do both with the Holy Spirit's help, truly walking in the Spirit. The second illustrations of limited and partial or temporary knowledge is found in verse 12. And it pertains 
to a mirrored reflection opposed to a face-to-face reality. Verse 12 tells us, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face-to-face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been known fully. Now, our modern-day mirrors, we look at this and go, well, mirror, I can see pretty clearly in a mirror now. Well, in the first century, it was polished metal, polished bronze. And even the best mirror, you could only see an imperfect reflection. And Paul is just saying here, he's saying that this life and what we see and what we understand is like looking into polished metal. We can kind of understand what's happening because we do have the Word of God. We have everything that we need. But we still, we don't know everything. Things are distorted. They aren't as clear as we'd like them to be. Can I hear an amen? We would like to know every answer, but we don't always see that. But when the perfect comes, it will be replaced by a brilliant clarity of seeing something or someone for the very first time. It's the difference between a two-dimensional picture. We can see something on, we have a calendar in our church office, and Becky, Becky makes me, because I am taller than she, and I take it and then I turn it over every, every month. And it's a beautiful picture, sometimes of... It's been Yosemite, or it's been in Switzerland, or someplace like that. And we look at this and go, wow, that's really pretty. But when you go, when the Myers, when they went to, to New Zealand, you can't understand what it would be like to see that in person. It's like when we look at something in an old black and white TV slightly out of focus, you know, analog. And then we go to Costco and we go back to those big old huge TVs that are 4K and you're going, wow. I think that's a lot what Paul is talking about. As to being with and seeing someone face to face rather than just hearing or reading about them, there's no comparison. There's no comparison. Listen to these examples from the Scriptures. From the Old Testament book of Numbers. This, I love this passage. It's the high priestly blessing. Well, listen to, listen to what Aaron speaks about. He said, the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Face to face. God seeing him face to face. Job's assurance. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Face to face. David's confidence. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. No longer through a mirror, a streaked mirror. Face to face. And our Savior's promise. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. When we finally are changed in what we are destined for, it will be perfect. 
which leads us to our last I of chapter 13. We began two weeks ago in verses 1 to 3 with the importance of love. In verses 4 to 7, we saw the impeccability of love. Earlier today, in verses 8 to 12, we saw the indestructibility of love, and now we finish with the invincibility of love. Why is love invincible? Because God is. Why is love the greatest? Because God is. Because God is love. Verse 13, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. What is faith? It's the full response to the saving gospel of Christ crucified. It is accepting forgiveness through the death of Jesus and the judicial verdict of justification. It is this, if you confess Jesus with your mouth, and that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. That is faith. Belief. What is hope? It's trusting God for the future. It's not, I hope it happens. It's, I can't wait till it happens. In this present age, it's looking for Christ's coming in glory. It's our blessed hope. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. And I suppose that when the perfect comes, these two things will no longer be needed. That is faith and hope. Because we will see Him as He is. He will be seen, not unseen. All the promises ever fulfilled come to fruition. But what is love? Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. But without love, faith is cold. Without love, hope is grim. Barclay has said, love is the fire that kindles faith, and it is the light which turns hope into certainty. Church, as we finish this morning, and yes, we are finishing early, I want to challenge us. I want to challenge you, me, to pursue love. It won't happen on its own. Because love, every one of these things, love, it's an action. Pursue it. When we, we need people of faith, there's no doubt. We need people who have great faith. And we all need hope. 
But love puts its arms around both of them and brings them both together and brings them all together and makes a perfect triad. Faith, hope, love. Chase after it. Don't sit passively. Remember what passive means? It's not coming to you. You chase it. And continually do so. And we need to pursue love, but we also need to practice love. And by that, I mean that we take every opportunity to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And our neighbor as ourself. Let me add this. Love one another. Also love our neighbors. And even our enemies. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. Lord, as we close this passage, may we not close our lives, our minds, and whatever else we control to love. May we reflect you, O Lord God, and with your spirit indwelling within us. May we love even those who are unlovable. God, this is not easy. but yet we are called to do this. And this is not impossible for us to do because you have not left us without your spirit. May you guide us and control us. May we be known by love. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.